you know we have to get the word into the garden service every week, so they said it this week and not me. So, um, worship worthy. Uh, this week, the passage is in 2 Samuel 5, 1 through 5, and also another passage in 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 5. But let me read this passage to you, verses 1 through 3. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh in times past when Saul was king over us. It was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be, my, be the shepherd of my people Israel. You shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and anointed King David king over Israel. So that's kind of uh, where we're living, leaving, starting today. This is the story of when David actually becomes king of God's people. And if you guys remember, those of you that have been in the garden for a while, we did like a 17-year series on the life of David in here. Uh, and that was fun, uh, but today we're going to kind of encapsulize it in just a little bit. Now I'm going to look at another passage in 2 Samuel 6. This is the response of the nation of Israel to David being made king. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And the first part of the passage, they talk about how they carried the Ark of the Covenant up, the Ark of the Covenant symbolizing the presence of God. They returned it to Jerusalem. So it's a very celebrative time. Everybody's excited. They're worshiping God. And it's important for us to understand, as you guys know, we go through three different aspects of a passage every time we look at it. We look at the historical, what about man? Theological, what about God? And devotional. That's what about me. So let's look at the historical passage, the historical part of this passage. First of all, they were joyful because, for David because of several things. Think about all that the nation of Israel has been through, from Abraham to Lot, we talked about it last week, to being uh, imprisoned in Egypt and slavery, all the fighting, they cleared out the Holy Land, and then you have the judges, then you have you know, Saul coming in, he's not a good king. And all this suffering and all this hardship and all this trial that Israel has gone through, and they finally have God's king in the rightful place. It's a very exciting time. And because of this, a worship of God ensues. And they were joyful for many reasons. First of all, they were joyful because David was one of them. He says, you are bone, we are your bone and your flesh. In other words, David, you are just like us. You are part of the family of Israel. Just like Jesus became one of us, David was one of them. Also, David led them out of darkness. Remember, he beat Goliath up, and he did a lot of other things. He won a lot of battles, won a lot of wars. He led them out of darkness, just like Jesus leads us out of darkness. And the other thing that I liked about David, and even though David was a flawed leader, one of the things we know about David is David would shepherd them, not just rule them. And there's a difference, right? He was going to shepherd them and not just rule them, just like Jesus shepherds us. And the last thing that made them most excited was that David did not take the throne on his own. David was placed there by God. So 
The, the, the nation of Israel was worshiping because David was one of them. He led them out of darkness. He was going to be a good king who shepherded them, and David was placed there by God. But notice their worship wasn't directed toward David. David made sure with his own example that their worship was directed toward Heavenly Dad. So that's the history. Now let's look at the theology of the passage. God is the one who preordained David. Matter of fact, David said this, you knew me in my mother's womb. David was king. David was planned to have been king millions of years before he was even born. God preordained it. God planned it. David was put there, preordained by God. David was prepared by God. In his childhood, with all the adult experiences, even in the dark times when he's in the cave running from Saul, God was using these things as he promises he does. All things work together for good to those who are the called according to his purpose. So God preordained David and God prepared David to be king. God preserved David. There were bears that tried to kill him. David took care of them. Goliath tried to kill him. He took care of them. Countless enemies tried to kill him, and David won all those battles. The enemy, uh, Satan, the father of darkness, tried hundreds and hundreds of times to kill David. Why? Because David was going to be the line of Christ. Christ claim to the throne. And so there were multiple attempts to kill him, and God preserved David. You know what else God did? God promoted David. David acknowledges many times that the only reason that he was king is not because he was a good general, not because he could fight, not because he could use a slingshot to kill a, a giant or a bear. David was king because God made it so. And so what we see here is David's coronation was a cause to celebrate. Why? Because it was a manifestation, an example, an active example of God blessing his people. And all those things we see about David, are same, the same things are true with Jesus and the work of Christ. So in many ways, David's coronation and the celebration that ensues is a great picture of Jesus and God's blessing of grace on his people. So the worship around God making David king is a picture that occurs naturally. We acknowledge Jesus as our king. Do you think the nation of Israel, with all the stuff they had gone through, had to be forced to worship God that day? For example... If you happen to be a Georgia Tech fan, <laughs> do you think you had to force George? Marianne, stop it. Do you think you had to force Georgia Tech fans to celebrate last night? For those of you who don't know, they beat God's team. <laughs> Which makes America a better place. So, but don't heckle me. All right. <laughs> learning from the best. But you think about this. Israel did not have to be forced to worship God. It was a natural reaction to God's action with King David. 
So that's kind of where I want to make sure that you understand. It's a natural thing. So now we've gone through the history and the theology. Let's look at the devotional application. What or who is receiving naturally worship in our lives? Guys, worship, while there are disciplines involved in worship, there are disciplines involved in worship, but worship should be a natural reaction to something clamoring for your worship in your life. So the question I'm asking you devotionally today is what or who is naturally receiving worship in your lives? First of all, to do that, we have to have a definition, a working definition of worship. So here it is. Ready? Worship is the multitasking act of giving a few things. Worship is not just music. As a matter of fact, maybe 5% of worship is music. Music is a good tool, but music is not worship. It's part of worship. So there are four things I want you to make sure that you understand about worship and what it is. First of all, worship is reverence. Now, reverence doesn't mean that you have high liturgical worship or you have a good praise band or that you dress a certain way when you come to church. That's not reverence. Reverence simply means you change your behavior in the presence of the thing or the person you're worshiping. That's what reverence means. Reverence means, okay, this is here. I have to change what I'm doing, what I look like, how I'm dressing, what I'm feeling. That's what reverence is. So one part of worship is reverence. Another part of worship is adoration. And that's a verbal declaration of how much you like, love, or desire something. Does that make sense? So you have reverence, change of behavior, adoration. It's a verbal declaration that you love something or like something or desire something, even if you'll allow me lust for something. Another thing about worship is it involves sacrifice. In other words, you're willing to give up something of value to further your connection with the person or the thing you're worshiping. So worship says, yes, there's reverence. You change your behavior around it. Adoration, you talk about how much you love it, how much you like it, how much you lust for it, and sacrifice. I'm willing to give up specific things of value to further my connection. And then there's submission. You follow the directives or the requirements necessary to make it a big part of your life. So that's what worship is. It's reverence, it's adoration, it's sacrifice, and it's submission. It's not just singing. Now watch this. Anything in our lives that draws reverence, adoration, sacrifice, or submission, we have declared worship worthy. Does that make sense? Anything that makes you change your behavior, anything that you verbally talk about how much you like, anything you're willing to sacrifice to further your connection, and anything you're willing to submit to to make it a big part of your life, you have declared worship worthy. Be sort of like this. Do you remember when Israel was complaining to Moses He had led them out of slavery, and then all of a sudden they wanted to go back to Egypt. In the midst midst of God providing Israel 
Israel was literally willing to give reverence, adoration, sacrifice, and submission to Pharaoh. They had declared at that moment that Egypt and Pharaoh was more worship-worthy than Jehovah, than God. How about some examples in our life? Is it possible that we decide that a job is worship-worthy, where we give it reverence, where we change our behavior, adoration, we declare how much we like it or how much we want it or how much we need it, sacrifice, we give up things to make it more connected to our lives, or submission, follow its directives so that we can make it an important part of what we're doing? Is it possible that a job can be declared worship-worthy? What about a relationship? A dysfunctional relationship, perhaps. What about a drug? Can a drug be declared worship-worthy? Can you change your behavior for a drug? Can you declare your adoration for a drug? Can you sacrifice things for drugs? Can you submit to what drugs say you must do to have it be a big part of your life? Is it possible that drugs are often worship-worthy in our lives? What about alcohol? Is alcohol ever worship-worthy? Any type of addiction, really? What about money? Does money make you change your behavior, declare your adoration, make sacrifice and submission? What about religion? Or a church program? Is it possible that a church program is declared worthy of worship because of our reverence, our adoration, and our sacrifice and submission? What about church liturgy? Or church music? Back in the 80s and 90s, there was a big war going on between traditional worship music and contemporary worship music. And it was a shame. It was pitting Christians against Christians. And one was saying, you know, that's not good. That's new stuff. And people were saying, new, the new, people like the new stuff. That's old. That's outdated. It's irrelevant. People were declaring church music worship worthy. Okay, how about this? How about a church building or its furniture? You know, I thought about saying this last week, and I decided not to because it was probably too controversial, so I'll I'll say it this week. (laughs) Let me tell you how much reverence and adoration church furniture and church buildings should have. On this stage where I preach every week, or where all the beautiful instruments are, or in the sanctuary where that big, beautiful marble table is, if necessary, if necessary, for people to be thought of as more important We should be willing to have a mom be willing to change a baby's diaper on these. You follow what I'm saying? Because they are not worship-worthy. The marble building, the beautiful stage, the beautiful music instruments and the lights and all that stuff, none of it is worship-worthy. But yet somehow we still give it our reverence, our adoration, our sacrifice, and our submission. What about self-righteousness? What about our own self 
moralization of our own lives? What about anger? Are we willing to change our behavior for anger? Are we willing, man, I can't wait to punch that guy in the face, that guy who blocked that field goal last night. (laughs) What about bitterness? Do you see how bitterness, we can declare bitterness, see how bitterness changes our reverence, our behavior, our adoration, our sacrifice and submission? What about a lack of forgiveness for a friend or family member where we set ourselves up as jury and judge? Guys, can you see how we are very easily, moment by moment, prone to give reverence, adoration, sacrifice, and submission to these things that are not worship-worthy? Here's the problem, guys. These things don't reciprocate blessing in our lives. They actually cheapen you. Yes, even church buildings. They can cheapen you, hurt you, lie to you, steal joy from you, break promises to you. They are all bad kings, unworthy of our reverence, adoration, sacrifice, and submission. Yet for some reason we still run to worship them, and I don't understand why we do it. Because, see, let me tell you, knowing and acknowledging Jesus as the King of Kings can drive you to worship no matter what else is clamoring for your adoration and reverence and sacrifice and submission. And all around you in life, everything is clapping its hands, yelling and screaming, saying, worship me. Give me adoration. Give me reverence. Give me sacrifice. Give me submission. Things all around you are screaming for it. Guys, aren't you just worn out and tired of worshiping bad kings in your life? Isn't it draining to give worship to things that cheapen you, to hurt you, and lie to you, and don't fulfill promises given to you? Isn't it time, guys, to make room for the one truly worthy of our worship? The one who actually gave his life for you instead of the ones who try to steal life from you? The one that adored you first? The one that sacrificed for you first? Don't you think we should be worshiping, submitting, adoring, revering, sacrificing for him? I mean, he adored us first. He sacrificed for us first. He gave reverence for us first. 1 John 4, 19 We love because he first loved us. You guys follow what I'm saying here? What I'm hoping to try to make you understand is that there's a lot of things in your life that you are currently worshiping, whether you realize it or not, because they're changing your behavior. You're voicing your love for it. 
You're sacrificing it to make it a more important connection, and you're submitting to its requirements to make it a bigger part of your life. I'm going to give you a bad king's worship vacation this morning. Jesus, the king of kings, is the only one worthy of your reverence changed behavior. Your adoration, your verbal declaration of your love for him. Your sacrifice. Here's my life that you gave your life for, Jesus. It's yours. And submission. Where you go, I'll go. Where you call me to go, I will go. And why is he worthy? Because unlike all those other bad kings that we worship, he first adored and sacrificed for us. 